When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Greg Hoffman from Take Command. And the best part about podcasts is they create a 25th hour in the day. Whenever I'm commuting, metro, car, even when I'm riding my bike around town, although in that case, one earphone only, safety kids, I'm always listening to podcasts. And this offseason, you can get all the insights, all the news, all the analysis, and Logan and I occasionally make a joke or two in the Take Command podcast on demand so it fits in to your busy schedule. Follow Take Command in the Odyssey app or wherever you get your pods. It's the most anticipated WNBA season in history. And you know what that means. Court is back in session. Welcome to Queens of the Court, an Odyssey original podcast. I'm your girl, Cheryl Swoop. And I'm Jordan Robinson. All WNBA season long, we'll be bringing you interviews with star athletes, analysis on your favorite teams, and lots of hot takes. Order, order in the court. Follow and listen to Queens of the Court on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time to take command with former NFL tight end Logan Paulson and former Commander's Beat reporter Craig Hoffman. It's the Take Command podcast from Odyssey Sports. Craig Hoffman, Logan Paulson here with you. We got the Patriots game preview coming up in just a little bit, but we are going to start with the trades. And before anybody says anything, yes, Logan, I am in a different location. I'm in my, uh, we're in between homes. Thank God there's a common area in our apartment building with actual internet uh, space. Are you moving? Like, the move is happening this weekend then, huh? Or yeah, this we're week? like in the middle of it right now. Oh, nice. We're in the middle of it. The movers come tomorrow. Uh, my internet in my new place was supposed to be here uh, for today. It was not due to a comedy of errors. And so uh, we don't have internet in either place right now. But you look Thank nice, God though. For well, it's, it's well lit, yeah, and it's, it's got like a nice backdrop, you know? Maybe I should have just been doing the podcast here all along. I think so, man. In a common really. shared area. Look, there is no one else here. I'm not being that guy right that'd now. Be so, that'd be uh, so weird, like you're moving to your spot, and then you walk into the common area, and someone's just doing a podcast. They'd be like, man, this dude is out of control. Yeah. So. You know some apartment buildings now have like podcast studios in them? No. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm like, Welcome tell me to 2023, baby. I, I'm a professional at this. This is what I do. I speak into microphones for a living. Some of y'all just, anyway, I don't need to be bashing podcasters. Uh, the point is, <laughs> the point is, uh, the commanders, speaking of moving, yeah, there, there's there it. See, that's, that's why they pay me the there big bucks. Uh, speaking of moving, Chase Young on the move to San Francisco. That trade now official. Uh, that took a little bit longer to process, I think, because the 49ers were on their bye week and they had to do all the medicals and stuff and get everybody in place. Uh, Montez Sweat, that was made official fairly quickly. Uh, he is on his way to Chicago. Um, just broad strokes, Logan, what do you make of the moves? Uh, the timing of doing them, what they get in return, the whole shebang. Yeah, I mean, I think um, let's start with Montez. I think Montez was the guy where there was like more value, obviously, associated with him because he's been healthy. He's been a little bit more consistent than Chase. And he's the player of the two that I'm probably more sad to see go because I feel like when he's played, he's been more consistent in terms of playing in the context of the defense. And, um, you know, I think it's kind of had a better chemistry with that defensive line. And, you know, John's mentioned that. Payne's mentioned that. 
Um, you know, other guys like Casey and James have also kind of said similar things. So obviously he's a guy that's, you know, been a good pro and indoctrinated himself well with the, within the organization. I think the problem is, you know, you're going to have to pay him probably more than you want to based on his level of production. Like I still think Montez is like a fantastic football player, really. Like he's, he's really excellent, but he's not, I don't think he's ever going to be in that top 10, you know, in terms of pass rush production. So, you know, your TJ Watts, your Bosa's, Garrett's, whoever you want to put in that group. Um, and I think that's probably frustrating for fans and probably ownership to a certain extent because you're going to have to pay him like that. And while I think he's an excellent football player and I want him around, like, is the juice worth the, worth, worth the squeeze in terms of the production you get out of it? So ultimately, I think they make they make the right decision because I'm not sure they'd be able to re-sign him next year or they'd really want to re-sign him at that price point. I think there was kind of this, you know, at least when I was talking to Fred and Santana and London Fletcher that day, there was this kind of underlying tone that you'd be able to get him in that like 20 to $21 million range. And then, you know, I hear on Kimes podcast that he's asking for that 25 number, which again, might not seem like a big difference, but that's probably two, that's probably two players, honestly, that you could go out and sign with that extra $5 million. So um, kind of get that perspective and obviously getting a, a first round pick essentially from the bears. I know it's a second round pick, but the bears are going to be picking high. They're not a good football team. They're probably be picking 35, 36, 37. So that plays like a first round pick. And obviously there's good football players there, especially next year's draft, at least from the kind of early stuff I've been listening to. Like there's going to be guys that fall into that top 40 that are first round caliber players. So great for this team. And also it gives you some, um, some, some, kind of equity to trade if you are looking to move up next year and kind of make your move for the quarterback, assuming, you know, I think Sam Howell's doing a great job, but maybe new ownership, um, new leadership wants to go in a different direction. I think that's a valuable piece. So all in all, like um, I think for the team, for the commanders, I think it's a good move. You know, you're getting something for a guy you probably wouldn't be able to keep next year. Um, I think it's frustrating for Montez. Um, you know, I think he probably wanted to go someplace else, but ultimately the the Bears come with the best offer and that's what you get. So in terms of that trade, in terms of that player and that trade, I, I feel like it's kind of as good as you can get, quite quite frankly. So, Yeah, no, 100%. And I agree with everything you said there. Um, they didn't want to move him. That's been reported widely. Um, they wanted to try to keep him. The, rea- the reality of keeping him did mean probably spending a little more than you wanted to, but it's worth it if you know there's going to be production and and he plays so well off of Duran specifically who you just locked up for the long term um and while your double digit sack guy might not be your edge player if your edge player unlocks a double digit sack guy in your defensive tackle then sure like let's let's do that but when you're gonna get what is a top 40 pick like it's a no-brainer because you can go draft a player the caliber of Montez Sweat, maybe not from year one, but like pretty quickly. Like over the next five years, let's say they draft a direct replacement. They draft an edge with pick 36 next year. Right. Who's going to be the best player, the better player over the next five years? That young guy might wind up being as good or better, and he's going to cost like a tenth of the price. And so yeah. it's just an, at that point a no-brainer. Um, it stinks. It sucks for Montez. Like you said, like Atlanta would seem to be the other team in it. And he's an Atlanta guy. Like I'm sure he would have preferred to go there than Chicago, but like, this is the business of football. The commanders would have been committing organizational malpractice, not to take the Chicago offer. Um, and not to mention it's just a better offer period. Nevertheless, like where the two teams are in the standings, the Atlanta offer, um, seemed to be that it was a third. And if he re-signed, it would be a second. So conditional, a pick and Chicago offers you a straight second. So you just take the Chicago pick and, and you move forward. 
Um, and that's a value play. Chase is a little more complicated. Um, yeah. The Chase Young deal is one that people are all over the place on. Um, I think JP put it really well on my show yesterday, though, when he came on. Um, and he goes, look, if you take your car uh, to the dealer to sell it, and they tell you it's $50,000, and you take it to another dealer, and it's $50,000, and you go to another dealer, and it's $50,000. One, that's a very nice used car if you're still getting fifty. Seriously, yeah. Uh, but but two, maybe we should use $20,000. Maybe we should use $10,000. Point is, <laughs> if you get the same price at every single dealer, that's, what it's that's worth. the price. Yeah. And so people people in you know can can think that because of where Chase is in his career, twenty four, his pass rush win rate super high, like he's done very very well as a pass rusher, specifically uh, in a couple of key statistics that he should be worth more than Montez or worth mm-hmm. you know more. Period. This is the market for Chase. Sure, knee injury plays into it. Kind of his reputation and what he puts on tape plays into it. Like there's a lot of factors here, but at the end of the day. Um, I think it's pretty clear that the command. This is the guy the commanders wanted to move on from for any number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of which are fairly obvious. Some of which might, you know, who knows what reporting may come out in the future. Um, mm-hmm. But this this was the move that they wanted to make, and and I think there is to use a phrase that's been used. I, I used it a couple of days ago. Ben put it in in print. There's an addition by subtraction element that they think both currently and in the long term that they had to make this move. Yeah, and so obviously, like you mentioned, this is the more kind of controversial trade because of the value. But I, I think you, you know, articulated that very nicely. Like this is the value. This is what the best they could get for him. And um, I, I heard that San Fran came with the best offer, which is a conditional third, which is going to play like a fourth. And you know, there's a lot of things like you mentioned that go into that. The one that kind of keep kept popping up when you talk to people is the health. There were a lot of people who were concerned about his health. Um, and I don't know. And I think there's kind of a myriad of other things that show up on film that say, hey, man, how hard does he play consistently? And I, this is not a bash Chase session. Like, I think Chase is yeah. a good football player. I think he's got a ton of upside. I think, <clears throat> I think some of the expectations that he had coming in here were going to be really, really challenging to kind of meet. I, you know, I was very high on him. Like, when you watch his college film, you're like, man, this guy's going to be amazing. And it just never really developed. I think his rookie year was was good. It was not great. I think people overhyped that rookie year too in terms of memory. Seven sacks, a couple forced fumbles, very similar to like Ryan Kerrigan's numbers his rookie year. And I, like both of them are good football players, but I don't think it was ever kind of this Nick Bosa, Joey Bosa, kind of the other Ohio State pass rushers in terms of production early in their career. And then obviously he struggled the next year and then had the injury and then he missed all of his third season and everyone's like well why didn't they pick up his fifth year option like i don't think i would have picked up the fifth year option no way. you know on a guy that had missed an entire season and was questionable in terms of coming back so there's and a by lot the way, of way who you've had all kinds of issues with in terms of the timeline of coming back like that's yeah. part of this is like there seems to be a real lack of communication and trust between the organization and Chase's side of it around that injury, around the injury earlier this year, where every time this dude got hurt, and maybe this is the organization's fault. This this is, yeah. again, not like a blame Chase thing. Maybe this is on the organization for doing a bad job here, but like every time this dude got hurt, there seemed to be some consternation around when he would come back and play, and that's something that, that knocks down your value uh, in the eyes of teams around the league. Yeah, I think so. I think you put that really nicely. I don't remember your exact wording, but basically like the relationship, you know, seemed to be stressed between Chase and the team. And so right. obviously whatever whatever that is, you know, that's behind closed doors, that's conversations between, you know, 
I don't know who. I don't even who's having the conversation. Right? But obviously, is it Chase? Is his agent? His family? Yeah. Like who? Who knows? Right. And so obviously that wasn't going well. And um, I, I just think it's the best thing for everybody. You know, you hear stuff. You hear stuff. You don't know how much of it's true, how much of it's not. But it just seemed like it was time for Chase to move on. And I and I think honestly, like this might be I might be in the minority opinion here, but I think this is the best case scenario for Chase. You're moving oh, on from too. the Commanders. You're going to a team with a former teammate, a guy who's done it been successful they're well coached daryl taps the defensive line coach there he seems to be able to get a lot out of kind of pass rushers that scheme is very pass rusher friendly you got eric armstead there a guy who has grown up former first round pick had to deal with very high expectations and they there is a culture there especially in that defensive line rooms of guys who've had to deal with very a lot of success some of them have failed like farrell i think is the other guy who was drafted in oakland um and like that's going to be great for his experience. Trent Williams is there, and from what I understand, and talking with guys in San Fran, like Trent Williams, he talk about a good leadership position that puts him in. Chase is going to have to go up against that guy every day in practice. I, I just think it's a good it's a good situation for him to kind of blossom, get away from some of the baggage, whatever that baggage is here, and reestablish himself. And I think they're going to give him an opportunity to do that. And they seem to have an ability to kind of reinvent people's careers. And so it's good for the organization because you're moving on from somebody who didn't seem to be clicking with you for whatever reason, um, didn't produce because probably because of the injury the way you want him to. And you get some value for him in return, a guy that was going to be tough to resign probably in free agency anyway. And he gets to go to a place where um, they're going to win some football games. And I think they're going to develop him in a way that um, because of the people they have there, not because of the coaching or anything, because of the culture they have there in a way that he wasn't going to be able to do here because the way we, the way this city, the way the team kind of anointed him early on, I think it made it very challenging for him to grow as a player. No, I agree. And to kind of go in on that a little bit, I think that there is obviously some of that that does fall on Chase. Like, you, know, 100%. You, were, you have to be able to grow up. You have to be able to be professional. You have to be able to do all these things. But I, I always kind of chuckle um, slash get extremely frustrated when a player gets traded and it's like, oh, that guy's going to thrive there in their culture. And it's like, is that a reflection of the player? Is that a sure. reflection of the organization that he came from? Like, what is it about this organization that um, that made it so he couldn't thrive here? And is that a culture thing within the Dean line room and the coaches that he's had, Sam Mills, Jeff Scanina, and, and company here? Is it the other teammates not being strong enough leaders? Is it like what is it that stuff here? And I think there's probably some shreds of truth in a variety of those different things. Yeah. But there's also in this particular case with this player and this team a geographic element that nobody could have ever done anything about. And I go back to a a quote that JP Finley shared on again, when he was on with me on Wednesday, Uh, definitely worth uh, checking out that interview. If folks missed it on the Hoffman show, Um, it's up on my YouTube page at Craig Hoffman at the team 980s YouTube page. And uh, of course in our podcast feed, but JP relayed uh, a conversation that he had with chase on camera on record, like at the 2020 combine, they they get a one-on-one interview and, he, and JP asked him about coming to DC and Chase goes, man, I know how, like, I'm excited, but I also know how DC is. There's a lot of fake love. And he had seen how, you know, the organization or like the fan base had fallen in love with a guy like Robert Griffin and then fallen out of love. And, um, you know, that's obviously Dwayne is, is there at the time and people right. were so excited and then kind of instantly were like, I'm off of Dwayne. And so, you know, he saw that. And there's also so much pressure and and family stuff and like all these kinds of things that you have to deal with 
when you're at home versus if you're halfway across the country or now full the way across the country. And I think there was just on some level for, and some guys can handle it better than others. So this is not to like totally say like, oh, well, it never was going to work. Nobody could have ever done anything. Some guys handle it better than others. Some organizations help insulate players better than others. But it very much seemed like with the tumult here the last couple of years with Chase, who was definitely into, you know, taking advantage of his star power, which I don't begrudge anybody for that. Like, go make your money, man. Do your Chipotle commercials. Do your stuff. Like, this is not a criticism, but, like, when you invite some of that stuff, that cranks that pressure up, Mm -hmm. and it just seemed like there was kind of an inevitability about the failure of that relationship, considering where both parties were and some of the factors that stressed it. So um, it's it sucks, um, but it's an unfortunate reality, and I think to conclude my thoughts – I agree with you that this is the best thing for both parties. Wish nothing but the best for Chase. And I do think that this this team will be better for having moved on from Chase and kind of getting that fresh start here in the Josh Harris era. No, I think you're – I agree with everything you said. I think the other thing is, too, like people say, oh, he'll do better there. And I I just think, you know, having been on multiple teams and been cut and signed and done the whole thing and talking with Tana, that was was a really illuminating conversation we had uh, yesterday on the show – Um, but you know, like you get to a new spot and they see you in a different way. All the baggage you had when you were with, when I was with Washington was gone when I went to Chicago and they kind of empowered me to take more of a leadership role in the locker room. And I wasn't an undrafted free agent. I wasn't Chris Cooley's backup or Fred Davis's backup. The guy that shouldn't have been starting. I was Logan Paulson, a guy they brought in for agency. Now I wasn't like a big free agent signing for them, obviously, but I was a guy that like they, they, they felt confident and they treated me in a different way and it allowed me to grow and blossom in a different way. And talking to Santana about his time in New York with the Jets was, was fascinating because I guess he came in on an injury very similar to Chase and yep. people and he didn't agree with the receiver coach and there was a lot of friction there. And um, and basically like the receiver coach kind of butt heads with Tana and Tana's, you know, a pretty easygoing guy, but they didn't get along well. There was this reputation that he was hurt all the time. And he was only hurt for a year. You know what I mean? It was just like that was kind of his narrative. And then he comes to Washington and it was like a clean slate. And he was, you know, seen as this model citizen, a guy that never was heard and kind of the guy we know and love today in terms of reputation. So I just think there's oftentimes like when you're in an organization, especially one that hasn't turned over a ton, there is this you get like a stigma. You're like this guy. And so I often like I advise guys, you know, guys in the draft and stuff like change is not bad sometimes it's helpful because it helps kind of rewrite the narrative for you so i know we're talking about him going to san francisco san francisco and being successful i just think getting different voices and a different perception of what he is and who he is is going to be helpful for him and i just think being in a room of guys who have done it at his position and are bigger stars than him probably in the nfl is going to be helpful for him and all those things it would be very hard to replicate that here in washington almost impossible unless you went out and signed you know miles garrett or or Joey Bosa or Nick Bosa or something like somebody like that. But right. but even uh, then, like imagine you go sign Miles Garrett, right? Then it's Miles Garrett and Chase Young. And it's like, oh, Miles Garrett joins Chase Young versus like, oh, right. Chase Young's going to play with Joey Bosa. Like when right. you're the incumbent, it's different. Sure. And so you, he never would have got, been able to get that here. Yeah. And I think that's, that's why, again, it's, I'm sure there was some clash in terms of organization that didn't, that just didn't work here. But I also think just moving on sometimes is really helpful. And I think that's kind of what we're talking about here. Um, I think, and hopefully it works out for him. I really do. I, I like, that's a guy 
that I, 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 you root for a little bit because like, because of the expectation, because of the hype, because of the talent. And I just hope it works out for him in San Fran. I really do. Cause I think that, you know, having played in San Fran, it's an awesome culture out there and Kyle's not going to, hopefully Kyle can get him going in the right direction, but, um, I'm excited for him and I'm, and you know, I'm excited for Montez in a different way because I think he's going to get paid, but you know, that's a, that's a tougher situation going to Chicago probably. Yeah. Um, we'll see if he ultimately is like, you know what? Atlanta's also going to pay me. Uh, <laughs> thanks for the nine games where I'm going to get a mysterious hamstring injury and I uh, have to go rehab somewhere warmer. Uh, right. But, you know, we'll see. Uh, I think that real quick to, to wrap up this segment before we get into the New England game, I think we should talk about it more from the commander's perspective and like, you know, were there mistakes made along the way kind of thing? Because I do think this defense can play better without these guys, which is kind of, I mean, obviously they can't play much worse based off the production. They're 28th in, in DVOA. They're 31st in points. They're 31st in yards. So obviously within the context of this season, just a regression to the mean of being average would be an improvement on, on what they've done from a production standpoint so far. Um, obviously we've highlighted at times in the film review pod, some of the issues that chase has had this year with the freelancing and some of the, big and it's plays not just chase. It's not just chase yeah. too, but no, it's, it's not, but he's, he's definitely one of the, he's probably the worst offender, even if it's not by a significant margin sure. um, and having guys and like the power of when a guy just does his job and plays hard and like, there's all that. But you also mentioned like in San Francisco, it's a very pass rush friendly edge rush friendly, specifically scheme. Yeah. And when I look at what Jack has done here, I actually just think it's worth like wondering and maybe it's not worth that much because you know who knows who's going to be picking players this offseason and if you know at that point like who cares it's what happened in the past but it is kind of like you know from the team building strategy and some of the issues that they've had like I do think it's it's frustrating to look at some of the players they brought in and where it hasn't worked the way that they schemed it up and it seems fairly obvious in hindsight from hey, we're going to draft Jamin Davis in the first round to make him our, like our star middle linebacker. And then it's like, oh, actually, he's playing Will and like he can't get on the field 100% of the time. And, you know, the, they like the idea of having a playmaker in Emmanuel Forbes, and then they're not really willing to tolerate the risk of what that actually looks like. Slash Emmanuel's got a lot of growing to do. And with a guy like Chase, if you're not a super like pass rush friendly, like, hey, let's let our edges be creative and, and do that kind of scheme, why did you draft him in the first place? I mean, he was an obvious pick at number two, but you could have traded out. Like, you could have, you know, if you wanted to be really bold, you could have taken Herbert or whatever. And I don't think any of us really, uh, uh, this is not, this is second guessing, just to be clear, right? Like, this is not something that at the time everyone was like, ah, oh, what are they doing? Chase was the obvious pick. But in hindsight, like, I guess really what I'm getting to, Logan, is like, what are the lessons learned from this experience now that Chase and Montez have been traded and it's over? Yeah, and I think that's really hard to know, honestly, with Chase specifically. I think um, with Chase, there's a lot of, you know, kind of like what if. I think, you know, he had the good rookie year, and he, I know he had a slow start to his second year before the injury, but, you know, maybe if he doesn't get hurt, it's like a different conversation completely. And it's kind of the same thing with Robert. Like if Robert never gets hurt, how does he progress going into 2013, all that kind of stuff. And um, I know that's a hard game to play. And I, and I also think it's important to note that, the draft is is an inexact science, and I think there's a lot of people that say, oh, this is how this player is going to turn out. This is what he can do. This is what he should do, and that is the correct approach because you're looking at an optimistic kind of view of of that individual, like Emmanuel Forbes. Like I think there was like kind of looking back at the the draft class, you know, when we did our draft evaluation, when I was doing my my tiers list, like he was kind of the the fourth guy. 
Does that mean I'm wrong? Does that mean the team's wrong? No, it just means they valued something different than I valued. And I think that that's so important is like, what is this? What is the guy like there's you're drafting an individual, you're drafting a player, and you're also drafting like hope and optimism and development. And I think that's it's really hard to negotiate that sometimes because there's better college players, obviously, you know, like hypothetically in this world of, of, of doing draft evaluation, but who's going to be the better pro? Because it's a different game. And I think that that is that's something I think if I was going to say to you, to fans, is the inexact nature of the draft. It feels very official and they get the draft boards out and they get the experts on there. But ultimately, you don't know. And it's and you're bringing you're bringing an individual in into a culture. How do they acclimate to that? How do they acclimate to the scheme? How do they acclimate to the coaching and all that stuff you try to account for? They do so many tests and evaluations, but you never really know. So uh, do I think that they've made mistakes? Yes, but every team, if you go back and review their draft, has made mistakes. And the teams with, you know, historically good draft, like everyone cites the New Orleans Saints when they drafted um, Lattimore and all those guys in the same draft. I think it was 2011, I want to say. Um, they got lucky. They, they hit on a fourth round, a fifth round, a second round. Their first round pick was okay. But they, the meat of the draft was in that kind of – you know, middle of the draft. And that's luck. I hate to break it to you. As, as, as confident as you are, you're lucky there. So not breaking uh, any news to me. Yeah. Right. I, and I so mean, like if, if they knew that Russell Wilson was going to be Russell Wilson in Seattle, they would have drafted him in the first round, not where they did. Same thing. I mean, frankly with Kirk <laughs> here, yeah. like if they knew Kirk was going to be what he was, they would have drafted him higher. And so would have every other team and Tom Brady, like those, like that, uh, that's what I'm saying. Ultimate and, example. Yeah. And you never really know. Right. And so I think there's something there. And so, uh, you know, in terms of development, I think you look at Jamin and you look at the draft class from last year and you say, or Jamin's year, draft, you know, Jamin, Sam Cosme, guys that are going to be contributors to this team that are playing good football. Deami Brown seems to have turned a corner, right? Um, obviously, B-Rob, um, all those pieces, Sam Howell, like those those draft pieces are going to be different. And so in terms of kind of malfeasance or malpractice, I don't think there's anything going on there. Um because I do think like when you say Chase Young, like there to me, there was no doubt. I thought he could play in any system in the NFL. And I was so confident in that. And it just didn't work out here for whatever reason, you know, and there's a myriad of reasons, some which we will probably report on at a later time. But I think that's so important for fans to understand. It's I think the, everyone in the organi organization is trying their best to get this done. They're making assumptions, they're making assumptions, they're making assessments. And uh, sometimes they work out. And I think when you look at the people that have been brought into this team, like Derek Forrest, for example, he's a six round pick and that's a good starting piece and good value. And I think people forget about those pieces sometimes, um, you know, when you miss on a first round pick, which again, I know is really frustrating, but right. I think it's all part of the process. Yeah. I mean, I would say the other last thing that I've just learned is I, I feel like through this experience, I've definitely learned more about D line play and the oh, importance yeah. of having some, you know, your play to use the basketball analogy everyone's using. Like, you need some 20 point scorers, you need some guys that are just going to set picks and do dirty work. And, you know, the balancing of like, you kind of know it on a roster building, you can't put too much into one position type of thing in general. But um, I do think that specific to D line play, like, really understanding that there's such an importance to having some stars uh, mm -hmm. and, and really great players, but you can't have too many of them at that particular group. And so, you know, in hindsight, the strategy of getting the four of these guys together was actually probably flawed to, to begin with, but uh, it was worth trying and ultimately it doesn't work out. And, and now here we are. When you talk about what you learn about D line play, I think the thing when you watch this D line and you watch them compared to other D lines that are very prolific in terms of pass rush is Drafting a good athlete does not make a good pass rusher. And I think that's something that you see 
at a pretty high level. Like unless that guy has a feel for what that looks like, you're going to end up with guys that don't have any nuance or bend or understanding angles or hand fighting or whatever it is. And I think that's something that if you want a good pass rusher, find someone who's got good pass rush production in college. And I know we talk about like Montez as being a, a very efficient player, but he was never, he was always an efficient player in college. He never was a guy that had 15 sacks. You know, he was always like right. 11, 10 sack kind of guy because he didn't have that, that high level nuance as a pass rusher. He's a great football player. He's a great athlete. But if you're looking for someone that's going to challenge Lane Johnson down and in, down out, I need to see a good athlete with good production. And I think that is something that, probably should shift like what is the goal is it is the goal to have a good defensive lineman or is the goal to have a good pass rusher and i look at some of the teams that have good pass rushing defensive lines and they're not the best defensive linemen but they are the best pass rushers and i think like understanding the difference in that selection and allocation is super important Hey everyone, this is Brett Boone. Would you know it? I've got a podcast going strong in our fourth year. Tune in as I sit down with my friends, some of the biggest names in sports, media, entertainment, for a lot of fun and in-depth conversations. As you know, baseball's been my life. It's been in the family for a long time, but it's a lot more than that here. It's sort of like taking a ride in a golf cart around a beautiful track. Join me every week for multiple episodes on the Brett Boone Podcast, available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did. Take a man podcast from Odyssey Sports. Slogan Paulson there. Craig Hoffman here. More game preview Sunday. Three hours worth. Tap Sports wow. Bar, MGM, National Harbor. Yeah, we do it every week, Logan. It's really quite amazing. This podcast is like 45 minutes. We do it for three hours every single Sunday. All preview uh, of the Commanders and, in this case, Patriots. The Take Command pregame show, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. on 106.7 The Fan and the Team 980. Okay. Uh, as for how this defense now matches up against a New England offense, which is uh, not not great. Um, hasn't been good very uh, much at all this year. Uh, Mac Jones has really struggled. He's been benched a couple times. Uh, they also lost maybe their best playmaker in Kendrick Bourne to a torn right. ACL last week. Um, is this the week maybe the commanders don't give up 100 yards to a receiver? That would be nice. Uh, how, how what, like, what are the threats of this New England offense, and, and can this defense, minus Young and Sweat, get off to a good start against them? Yeah, I mean, I think this, um, this New England offense is very interesting in kind of its construction. And I think that's one of the criticisms when you list to, listen to like New England media at the time right now is that they've they've built a roster that is relying on Tom Brady to elevate it in terms of offensive playmakers. They don't really have anybody that's super dynamic. They haven't really developed anybody. You mentioned Kendrick Bourne is kind of being their best playmaker. Devontae Parker is another guy that's been hurt a little bit for them. I think he's out this game. I, I don't know. We'll check on the injury report as we get closer, so make sure you turn into the pregame show where you get all that kind of hey, up-to-date plug. injury stuff. You know, Jalen Rager is kind of their one receiver at the moment. He's obviously an explosive guy, but never really kind of found his legs in Philadelphia, obviously understanding his limitation. Keishon Boutte is the other guy that I think is really interesting. 
drafted him from LSU, was supposed to be kind of this first-round pick, but hasn't really progressed. Tyquan Thornton, another guy that shows up quite a bit. He's the guy that ran the 4-2 from Baylor. So explosive guys, but guys that aren't like producing really in the offense. And you could argue why that is. And I think when you look at the offense and you look at Mac Jones, I think he's got some ability. But I do think he is physically limited in terms of arm strength and pushing the football down the field. He's very accurate. I think he processes stuff well. That does seem to be a little bit of an issue for him at the moment. But they just don't have a lot of teeth to the offense right now. Obviously, Juju Smith-Schuster's on the roster. He's the second guy behind, um, what's his name? Uh, Jeez, Jalen Rager. So we'll see if he ends up playing more because of the injuries to Devontae Parker and Kendrick Bourne. But again, it's not this dynamic playmaking group. The guy who's been really exposed for them is Farrell Brown. And he's uh, very interesting because he's like the third guy. You know, they have Gusecki, they have Hunter Henry, and he's the guy that's kind of made these explosive plays, these splash plays in the offense. But that's it's a weird place for that to be coming from, I guess is what I'm saying, right? It's, yeah. it's I, I don't know. So basically, they have a lot of players, they have some talent, but it doesn't really progress. And you can see they go through phases. You watch the, the Bills game, they look pretty good. They find ways to get kind of chunk plays. They run the ball pretty good. They had a nice drive at the end of the game to win the football game, but the consistency is just not there. And I think it all kind of loops back to, A, having a young quarterback that's not surround, surrounded by an overly talented group of playmakers and offensive line. I think they have some pieces on the offensive line, but again, they've had a lot of injuries there. It's just a banged up kind of incomplete group feeling. It feels like they've got guys you like and get excited about, but nobody are like, wow, that guy scares me or that guy does this. And we've said that before. But even when we're talking about the New York Giants, for example, they had guys yeah. that were more established playmakers than this, and they just don't have that here in New England. It, it feels like. Yeah. So the last, I mean, it feels a little Denver-y um, where Marvin Mims wound up being the guy. Like, mm. don't let don't let the one right. fast guy kill you. Right. Um, and that's obviously coverage bust. That's actually executing in, in man-to-man situations, whether that's actual man-to-man or like you're the deep player. Now you're one-on-one in a zone. Um, just making plays. That's that's what's got to happen this weekend. Obviously, stopping the run going to be very important as well. Ramon Jerry Stevenson. But like you said in the beginning, I don't know if this was a Freudian slip uh, from you, but you're like, uh, it's they built an offense that needs Tom Brady to elevate them. I don't know if you meant Mac Jones or just like they've built an actual offense that could use Tom Brady and they no, don't that, have Tom that, Brady anymore. That's what I'm saying. Like they built yeah. the offense kind of, you know, Bill, Bill Belichick's the GM up there, right? And and he right. kind of handles all the personnel decisions. And he's and built it, just, it like he still has Brady, but he doesn't. That's what it feels like. It's like yeah. this would be fine if you had Tom Brady here, but you don't. Because everything so, would be fine if you had Tom Brady. Correct. Here. So, you know, they can get away with having – kind of a hand-me-down wide receiver, guys that don't really show up a ton. Like, you know, Demario Douglas is a guy that I liked from Liberty. He's kind of their slot, kind of Wes Welker-esque type guy. He's a good playmaker, but that's a piece. It's it, You lack the true one. And when you have a backup, not a backup quarterback, a young quarterback, I think about like think about Sam Howell, for example. One of, the re- one of the reasons I think he's been very efficient throwing the football is because he's got guys – who can get open versus man, who are experienced playmakers and can make plays for him, right? You got Terry, you got Jahan, you got Logan Thomas, all these guys, Curtis Samuel. But up there, there's not a lot of that. And I think their offensive line, honestly, they have some talented guys, but they've been banged up. They're a little bit up and down. So I think they're asking a lot of Mac Jones in terms of elevating a bunch of playmakers that are obviously they have some skill, 
but are not overly dynamic in terms of like consistently making plays. So that's what I would say to that. And I, the new offensive coordinator, Bill O'Brien, I think he's doing some interesting stuff, but it does feel a little bit disconnected. So it's not a great situation. And I don't think there's, I don't think it's surprising that they've had games where they've scored zero points. So, you know, against New Orleans, for example, like New Orleans is a great defense, probably one of the better defenses in football right now, but you still should be able to score some points. And um, I think defensively for the commanders, this this should be a, I don't want to say get right game, but it should kind of follow the pattern you followed this season. When you're not playing a top quarterback, they've been very successful and they've been very effective. And I think this should kind of fit in that mold. Yeah, and we'll see, obviously, what kind of pass rush pressure they can get um, without the two guys they just traded, but, you know, some discipline. And, and I would say, I would imagine the interior guys are pretty high. I mean, James and Casey are going to be highly motivated. That That's another thing here, too, right, is, like, who gets the snaps? Um, yep. James and Casey are going to start. I would be stunned if they don't. Um, F.A. is back, uh, and so he should be heavy in the rotation. But I think what you're going to see is, opposed to Chase Young playing 85% of the snaps, like, those guys will play 60, 65, probably. Which is probably and, right which is probably like a better percentage for a starter, no matter who it is. Um, maybe like if it's an elite guy, you want him out there 70, 75% of the time. But for those guys, like 60, 65 is fine. Um, and then you're going to get to see the kids. Like I'm excited to see Andre Jones Jr. I'm excited to see KJ Henry. Like what do these guys do? And also how do they use them? Like I would imagine AJJ is out there in third down pass rush situations. You try to keep him out of there first and second down. I'd imagine KJ Henry's just becomes what James Smith Williams or Casey Tuhill used to be that five to 15 snap guy. Who's going to play when the other guys are tired. Um, and maybe he'll start a couple of series and kind of be out there to make sure they get some rest. But it's going to be interesting to see how they play it. You know, do they still use the Cinco package as much? Like there's a lot of questions that just come from the fact that you've got two guys who were key essential parts playing 70 plus percent of snaps that aren't there anymore. And how do you ultimately replace them uh, both for the, the betterment of your future, uh, but also the betterment of your present, the maximization of your present. Yeah, 100%. The other guy that I think is kind of interesting is like Abdullah Anderson. You know, in Atlanta, he played kind of a five technique, big defensive end. Does he push out in running situations to kind of get mm. some bigger bodies on the field? I don't know. I, I have, that's just speculation. But I do think you have a lot of pieces there that are, to your point, question marks. And um, I'm excited. I'm really probably the thing I'm most excited about when it comes to defensive line is what does Jack do differently? Because traditionally, historically, when Chase hasn't been playing, when Montez hasn't been playing, and those guys have filled in, they've, those guys have done a great job. But Jack's done a good job of saying, hey, man, I can bring more zone pressure. Because now I know Casey can drop. I know James can drop. I, I know they understand the coverages. I don't feel this pressure to let the defensive ends rush all the time. We get different pressure looks. We're able to generate more pressures so i'm kind of curious to see what that looks like if jack employs that a little bit more because kyle pointed this out we've talked about it before for whatever reason the defense has been more efficient when those guys when chase specifically has not been in the lineup and i think it's just because you get you get a little bit more flexibility from the play caller and you get guys who are going to do what they're supposed to do now like we talked about their offensive line the um the the new england offensive line i think they're good players like trent brown to me is one of the best offensive linemen in football like when he wants to be but the problem is he doesn't always care to do that so um he's, he's also battling be... a back injury so we'll see oh is he, he yeah is he gonna yeah, play he did, didn't practice on wednesday so we'll see and when you watch them it kind of feels like the commander's offensive line to a certain extent like there's good pockets there's good presence but also sometimes 
like Mac Jones just makes them look terrible because he's holding the ball so long and he's like running into sacks. And they've done a really good job of kind of piecemealing that group together. Like they've got their starting right guard is playing tackle and they've brought in a backup and there's kind of this swinging door rotation inside. So it'll be curious to see who their starting five is going to be. But it does feel like a group just because not because of the personnel necessarily, but because of people playing out of position people not playing with each other a ton that the defensive line and Jack should be able to take advantage of in a way that is probably different even than New York. So I think that there's something to that. I also think that New York is a team that had a very kind of clear identity offensively. They wanted to run the football. They want to run play action pass. They want to run keepers. They knew where their weakness was. And when you watch New England, that's not the same vibe you get. They're in the gun quite a bit. They want to throw the ball a little bit more. It feels a lot like what Bill O'Brien was doing at Alabama. Um, you know, they go through spurts where they're like, we're going to be physical, we're going to run the ball, and they're just not as efficient at it because you can tell they haven't practiced it as much. They're kind of going through a similar offensive identity crisis to what the commanders were going through against um, after we played the Giants, for example, right? It's like, what do we yeah. do well? How do we change where we are? But it seems like they're doing that kind of in the flow of a game a little bit, which is tough to see. So it'll be curious to see like what they finally settle on for this game. But I think it's been important to note that they haven't done anything overly effectively outside of the Bills game where the offense looked pretty sharp. Yeah, and that was against the version of the Bills defense that's down a bunch of guys, why they made some trades at the deadline, et cetera. Sure. Uh, that, that Bills defense, definitely not what it was to start the year, certainly when uh, Washington played them, even uh, missing some key parts. Take a man podcast from Odyssey Sports. Logan Paulson there. Craig Hoffman here. Don't forget, after the game on Sunday, we'll have our instant reaction show roughly 90 minutes after the final whistle. So join us on YouTube at the Team 980 and at 1067 The Fan. And if you can't join us, that's okay. That becomes the Monday morning podcast. So make sure you're subscribed wherever you get yours. Okay, so that's the side of the ball, the defense we just talked about, where we feel pretty good because New England's offense is uh, not not has really been, has been inconsistent. Let's just say yeah, that. that's that's a good nice way to put it, good professional way to put it. Um, and this, and, side I, of the and ball this is the other thing. Yeah. Like, to, sorry to cut you off. I was talking to Tan about this yesterday. They've been inconsistent, but we've played inconsistent offenses before that have become and it's consistent. Been the get right game. Yes, yeah. so I am a little bit leery of bringing all that up, but on paper. It, yes. it feels like, right, that we should be in a pretty good position here. But who knows? Yes. On paper, it feels like Sam Howell should be terrified because he is a young quarterback <laughs> and Bill Belichick eats young quarterbacks for lunch. There is no one in the history of the National Football League that is better at confusing even veteran quarterbacks. Like, go yes. talk to Peyton Manning about what it's like to face a great Bill Belichick defense. And this is not a great Bill Belichick defense, but it's not a bad one. And schematically, he has a way of finding what it is that you do poorly and making you do it. And more importantly, I think he probably is the best ever at taking what you do well away from you he will double guys hardcore he will just sell out to stop the run he will do whatever it is that he needs to do to put you and your offense and your quarterback in a bad position and for young quarterbacks specifically he often knows the weaknesses identifying blitzes and coverages and so he junks it up and it works so if i am eric Bieniemy getting sam howell ready for this game i am uh i'm sweating a little bit 100 percent. couldn't have said it better myself and it's not Okay, well, and that's the podcast. Thanks for listening. I, I mean, that's I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Like the most compelling storyline in this game, in my opinion, is Sam Howell versus Bill Belichick. 
100% full stop. Because, like you said, he does stuff that's a little unconventional. They have so much defensive volume in. They can literally become and do anything they need to do. They can play drop eight with a spy versus John Allen. They can play a six-man front with a middle with one middle linebacker versus Miami to stop the outside zone. They can do they're, – they're so flexible. And then in coverage structure, you have all these guys with like number 48 on certain downs who's their middle linebacker is all of a sudden a defensive end in certain looks. So how do you account for that from a protection standpoint? They bring all out. They play zero. They play zero true man. They play zero match. They play um, – cover three with two lurk players it's just they do a lot of stuff that is very confusing and confounding to defenses to to offenses excuse me so one of the issues sam howells has struggled with is identifying coverages and identifying fronts and when you look at what they do they can they they have so much flexibility in terms of personnel and in terms of coverage structures that it's going to be very very challenging i think to keep him identified. Now, Fred Smoot brought this up the other day, so I got to cite my source. But he said traditionally, Andy Reid defenses do a pretty good offenses do a pretty good job against Bill Belichick defenses. But I think, to me, skeptical Sally over here that it's probably because they have better quarterbacks. At the you know they have um, Patrick Mahomes or whoever it is. So I, I look at this and I'm like, if I'm if I'm EB, you literally have to kind of prep for everything. But I'm prepping for zero blitz. I'm, pressure, pre- I'm prepping for a lot of unusual kind of all-out pressure looks. And I'm, pre- and I'm prepping for kind of unusual coverage structures in the back end and hoping we can give Sam tells to help identify what they're going to be. Because this is maybe the most interesting game, in my opinion, for Sam. Because he does yeah. well against the Eagles. They play simple coverage structures. They play man, they play cover three. He did well against that. Look at the Giants. It's a little bit more complicated, a little bit faster, a little bit more dynamic, a little bit more risk-reward, and he struggles. This could easily, easily turn into that game for him. And there's even a layer of complexity in terms of, obviously, um, Wink Martindale does a ton of stuff that's really nuanced from a pressure standpoint, but the coverages are, are, are a little simpler. Now you get complicated blitz structures in conjunction with complicated coverage structures, and it's like... I don't feel great about that matchup, honestly. Yeah, no, I feel terrible about it. I straight up do not feel good about it. Um, it feels very Giantsy. It feels very Billsy. Um, oh and- yeah, I forgot about the Bills. Like fat, like when he plays fast defenses, it fast, confident defenses that disguise stuff well. It and it not, that's this is not a criticism of him. This is very understandable. He's a yeah, young this quarterback. is this is life of a young quarterback, and it just hasn't gone well. And this defense. While they might not have the elite playmakers that they've had in the past, they just do so much stuff. Like I was watching a third down cut up the other day, and it's like, oh, we've got three defensive linemen. Oh, actually, no, we're going to treat this linebacker like a defensive end because he's got his hand on the ground, but he's technically a linebacker. So they have four linebackers on the field, but one's a defensive lineman. Actually, they've got three safeties on the field and one corner. Like they just they have so much flexibility, not only in terms of scheme, but in terms of personnel. It just gets really hard to identify stuff. And though Tyler Larson's going to have a huge, huge role in this game of just like you're putting him in there because he's got a lot of experience. Like he better be studying his face off this week because he's going to have to know who are the rushers in certain down and distances. What kind of pressures do they like? How do we get this called? And I'm pretty sure Bill will bring game plan pressures like I would if I was him. And we and if yeah. I had the flexibility in terms of personnel and intelligence to get that done. So um, it's going to be a really – and it, this is not an overbearing – 
defensive group from a talent standpoint. They're overbearing. Yeah, some, because, of their, some of their best guys are hurt. I mean, Matthew Judon is hurt. Christian Gonzalez, who obviously is a name that everyone is familiar yeah. with because uh, the commanders passed on him for Forbes. Like, he's hurt. He's on IR. So, um, you know, they've got a couple of their other guys, top guys that are hurt, but they still have Jabril Peppers, who's super flexible. They've still got Kyle Duggar, who does everything. Very flexible. They've got all these guys. They just traded for JC Jackson again. We'll see how much he's out there. Like a guy who's he's been playing not a lot. Good, but yeah, he's not, not have a good well. career in uh san diego or in uh la but um he gets traded back and like he was awesome when he was in new england the first time around so how quickly can he readapt to to what they were doing so there there is definitely still talent um even if it's not high end but as you said it's the schematics that that are worrying uh, i think one of the things like to me that becomes super important then obviously is what does the enemy do how does Enemy yeah. handle this because even running the football becomes difficult if you have trouble i, I mean not even Running the football becomes very difficult if you're not good at identifying fronts. You have got to be able to get runs targeted for them to be effective. And so that becomes a huge challenge for both Howell and Larson. That is the biggest impact a quarterback has on a run play, so long that he doesn't fumble, um, is correctly identifying, like, all right, who's the Mike linebacker? How are we targeting this? Anybody else that we want to adjust for? Do we want to bring a guy in motion to add a, a blocker to the, you know, whatever surface, blah, 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 blah. So that stuff becomes hard. Then if you pass, like, you have to read the whole field, that becomes very difficult. Can you do some of the, the, the half roll and, and full bootleg stuff, cut the field in half and try to make things a little more simple for Sam. But that also comes with its own set of challenges of you've now eliminated half the field and Belichick is no dummy. He'll be ready for those kinds of things. So there's, there's a lot of potential answers, um, but against a confusing and very disciplined defense, these become less tenable and that's why they're so good is because there's not like a simple thing where it's like okay well if they do that then we know what to do yeah i'm with you and they're pretty good at stopping the run i think they're second in the nfl in terms of allowing the least explosive runs like their percentage is crazy so they, they're they're like you said they're disciplined they, they have some talented pieces like Keon White's a guy, rookie out of Georgia Tech, got some dynamic, some dynamism as a pass rusher. Christian Barrymore, the guy they drafted in the second round a couple years ago from Alabama, dynamic pass rusher. Uh, Wise is a guy that I think is often overlooked, but is a kind of pass rush specialist. So they do have pieces and they do are disciplined. They have talented guys in the back end. And it's just this the, the thing that defines this group to me is the you've said it a couple of times and i think it's really apt the flexibility they can linebackers can play safety safety can play linebacker they can do all sorts of stuff they've got guys in the defensive line that can play defensive end they can play defensive tackle they can stand up in certain situations and drop so there's just a lot they can do and it's I, I, they make mistakes sometimes because they have so much defensive volume in, but it's just when you're watching it, it's just a lot going on. And I think if you can find ways to simplify what you're looking at, I don't know if that's getting an empty. That's usually a good way to simplify defensive coverage structure. That might be one solution. Um, I, you know, saying we're going to run the ball doesn't seem like a super tenable thing because that's not what EB wants to do. And, um, the way that this defense plays, they, they kind of take that away from you. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens. A really, really compelling element of the game. You mentioned what EB does. You mentioned what Belichick does. Sam, how he processes everything. Tyler, how he targets stuff. Uh, it's going to be an awesome chess match. And I think the main thing is, like, can you just limit the mistakes from Sam here? 
Um, can you not have a Bills game where he's throwing a ton of picks? Can you not have a Giants game where he's taking a ton of sacks? Um, and it's going to be challenging. It's going to be really challenging to do that because it's about what Sam sees and making that picture super clear. So um, in terms of things that I'm excited for in this game, that's one of them. Like as a football fan, I want to see what EB comes up with. I want to see what Sam does. But I'm also very leery because I know that it's going to be very challenging for him to handle some of that stuff. No doubt. Uh, we'll talk about this a lot more on Sunday. Take Command pregame show starts at 10 a.m. We'll see you here on YouTube if you're watching it. Uh, you can, of course, listen on the free Odyssey app or on your radio, 106.7 The Fan, the Team 980. Uh, if you are enjoyed what, what we did here, uh, we do this three times a week, so make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For Logan Paulson, I am Craig Hoffman, and we will see you Sunday. You can come hang out with us, too, in person at Tap Sports Bar MGM at National Harbor. See you then.